Hello, hello. Here we go, people. This is going to be view number three. I think I'm going to call this view ancient war language. Ancient war language. And I'm going to have Paul Copan, who is a professor of theology at, uh, I don't remember where he's at. I think he's in San Diego somewhere. But you can look him up. He wrote the book, Is God a Moral Monster? Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N. And I'm going to have you listen to his presentation that he gave at an apologetics seminar. So there'll be two sections I'll have you listen to. Uh, So here we go. Another principle uh, to help guide us as we look at the Old Testament scriptures. Avoid this statement, please. I take the Bible literally. That is such a confusing, misleading statement. Don't use it. Well, what do you suggest in its place? Here we go. Read the Bible literarily. Because there's some things that should not be taken literally. When the trees of the field are clapping their hands, don't take that literally, please. The Bible is filled with different types of literature or genres in in, in the scriptures. Now we have historical narrative, we have poetry, we have prophetic literature, we have apocalyptic literature in Daniel, Ezekiel, and of course the the center of uh, the book of Revelation. We have gospels, which are a, uh, you know, in the form of Greco-Roman biographies. We have epistles or letters that have been written. So there's a whole range of types of literature within the scriptures themselves. And so we have to be very careful about having a one-size-fits-all approach to interpretation. And this will be very relevant when we we look at the Canaanite question. Let me just give you a little uh, precursor here. In ancient Near Eastern war texts, excuse me, the lecture is starting to get a little dry here. What are you going to do? He's a punny guy. Punny. In ancient Near Eastern literature, commonly in war texts, you would read exaggeration or hyperbole similar to what you see in Joshua, where we left no survivor. We left alive nothing that breathed. Sometimes, however, in the ancient Near East, you could, you know, a, a command, military commander could have eked out a victory, but he'd say, we left alive nothing that breathed. You know, they basically made it. But then they'd use ex- exaggerated language. We left alive nothing that breathed. No survivors left. Well, anyone reading that in the ancient Near East would not take that to be literally true. They would see that as kind of stock exaggeration, common in war texts, but it wasn't intended to mislead. This is just how things were. It's sort of like when you, you know, you win a, when you win a hockey game and the Canucks really slaughtered their opponents. 
Would that were so, right? Yeah, just uh, that's just coming through all the way, and um, wish you guys well. I'm not a, I'm not a hockey fan uh, myself, but uh, but pulling for the Canucks here for you guys. Um, but you know, in, in basketball or whatever, you know, this is commonly used. Yeah, you know, we, we we annihilated those guys. Well, no one takes that literally. Everyone understands that this is hyperbole or exaggeration. In fact, the very language that is being used of the Canaanites, you know, leave alive nothing that breathes or utterly destroy them. It's interesting that God uses that very term when he is going to bring judgment on the people of Judah. For example, in, uh, in Jeremiah, 20, in Jeremiah uh, 25, 9, God says, I will completely destroy them. Same word that's used for the Canaanites. He's talking about the people of Judah. Through Bab- the Babylonians are going to invade, and they're going to take, uh, take Judah you know, captive, going to take some into exile, but most of the people will remain behind in the land of Judah. But God yet says, I will utterly destroy them. He says, I will make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. In fact, in Jeremiah 9, 11, he says, I will lay waste the towns of Judah so that no one can live there. Again, this is exaggeration. This is hyperbole. And that same term that is used for the Canaanites is also used of Judah. But again, we know that there were lots of people from Judah who survived. They were not utterly decimated. And it's interesting, too, that when you read in the book of Joshua, You'll see language, and again, I've given you some notes on this, uh, but, you know, but I'm, we'll just get there when we get there. But, but, I, but I mentioned that the, the very kind of language that is being used in, you know, in, uh, you know, for the Canaanites is being used for the people of Judah. And we see that kind of exaggeration that is common in ancient Near East also being used in the, you know, in the scriptures. And we also read that when there is mention of no survivors, we'll often see on the next page in the scriptures, lots of survivors left. So, for example, you know, it looks like you know, Joshua is talking about we've, they had rest on every side, you know, all their enemies you know, wiped out, no survivors left. Well, then we read in Judges, which is literally connected to, 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 uh, to Joshua, and we see that they're Jebusites who could not be driven out. We see lots of people who are still in the land. In fact, even at the end of Joshua, he talks about the nations that remain among you to this day. So he is recognizing that there are lots of people still in the land. In chapter 11, the Anakite, the Anakites, the sons of Anak, were mentioned that they were utterly wiped out. None left. Then... We get to chapter 14, and Caleb says, boy, there are lots of Anakites left in the land, in the hill country. So he's going to go, and they're going to do battle and so forth. Well, what's happening? It's, it's interesting. I was on a uh, – I did a radio debate with a, the, the, uh, an atheist or you know, the president of the London Humanist Society, Norman Backrack. And you, you can find this on the, on the internet. And uh, Norman Backrack and I were going back and forth on this. He said, if you say – that you can't you know, take the Bible literally when it says we left alive nothing that breathes, then what can you take literally in the Bible? I said, well, why is it that you're taking only one side of the ledger literally, but you're totally ignoring all those survivors that were left? Lots of them. I said, so you know, it seems like you're not playing fair here. You're saying you need to take this literally, but you're ignoring all those survivors that remain. Lots of people. I said, you can't have it both ways. 
I said, if you take both literally, they're going to contradict each other. But I think if you understand what is going on in the ancient Near East, it, you know, that they, they used exaggeration, hyperbole, it puts all of these things into proper perspective. So there is no inherent contradiction here. So we have to avoid the misleading statements that are often made about taking the Bible literally. And what we need to do is read the scriptures more carefully, not more superficially, but more carefully, attending to the text in greater detail so that we'll actually see more clearly what is going on here. And so we just recognize that there are different types of literature in the scriptures that demand different ways of interpreting. Let me just finish on this with just an example. Historical narrative, the principle for interpreting historical narrative is going to be pretty much diametrically opposed in methodology to how you interpret uh, apocalyptic literature like Revelation 4 through the middle of chapter 22. This, you, you basically, you know, in historical narrative, you assume that, assume that something is literal unless there's strong reasons for taking it figuratively. When you get to apocalyptic literature, you basically assume that something is symbolic unless there are strong reasons to take it literally. So again, you can't have a one-size-fits-all approach to interpreting scripture. So beware of that line, do you take the Bible literally? That's not a fair question. Say, no, I take the Bible literarily, taking each genre or type of literature within scripture on its own. And if you want to read a little bit more on this, I may be overshooting my time here. What, uh, do I go to 12? Oh, praise the Lord. Thank you. All right. Very good. That's good. <clears throat> So I like to say I, I felt like I was the Egyptian mummy uh, pressed for time. Uh, so but I will try to wrap things up uh, quickly. Don't you think so? Okay, all right. Otherwise, I could just babble on and on and uh, just go nowhere. Good stuff. All right. Well, as we come now to the third portion of my talk, and you get, you have a handout there. It's actually taken from an article that I wrote with uh, a friend of mine, Matt Flanagan, uh, published in the Christian Research Journal. And so this is just a, uh, you know, again, a you know, pared down version of that that I'm uh, passing on to you in the, in the handout. But let me just hit some of the high points of that uh, that essay and just, you know, again, some of the themes that are talked about in the book is God a Moral Monster. First, it's important for us to keep in mind that when God is bringing judgment on the Canaanites, when God says, you know, leave alive, not that breathes, you know, that you are to uh, that you are to make war on these cities and so forth. Uh, you know, what is going on here? Well, first of all. This sort of a command can only be carried out if it comes through divine revelation, that God has a specific purpose for it. If it's just attacking another people, that is problematic. But this is not what is happening. God is the one who is issuing this command. And what's, what, what you need to keep in mind, too, is that it is an act of judgment on a morally degraded people. It is not as though they're just your kind, moral neighbors. These are people who are engaging in incest, in adultery. They have temple prostitution. Uh, they have, uh, you know, this whole basically uh, religiously sanctioned adultery. You have bestiality. Uh, you know, you have all sorts of horrific things, child sacrifice you have going on. So God is saying that as Israel comes in, 
it is going to be a simultaneous setting up of the you know, of the people for them to establish themselves in a land in order to prepare the way for the coming of a redeemer for all peoples. But it is judgment that is now ripe. In fact, God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, 16, that he is going to wait for the sin of the Amorites, one of the Canaanite peoples, to finally be completed. So 430 years go by before that actually takes place. So God is waiting patiently. This is something that is a long time in coming. So, so God is, you know, so, so there's no ethnic hostility here. There is not a, you know, it's not as though this is, quote, ethnic cleansing. For one thing, when we look at what's going on here archaeologically, we see that you know, what, what Israel is engaging in is more like disabling raids rather than totally obliterating a land. They're disabling raids. And it's interesting that the cities like Jericho, uh, Ai, uh, Hazor, and others, these are cities that are not where civilians dwell. I mean, you might have a tavern keeper like Rahab, but these are places where you have the military and political uh, rulers who are hunkered down there. This is the first line of defense before you get to the hill country. And so these are you know, not battles against non-combatants. They are battles against those who are fortified and ready for battle. And so these battles are actually you know, what the archaeologist Kenneth Kitchen calls disabling raids. In fact, God tells the people of Israel that you are going to inhabit houses and so forth that you have not built. And what would be the point of that, of just totally obliterating everything and then trying to set up shop and live in these places? Also, from archaeology, we know that this is the case, that there was a gradual infiltration. It was, was not some massive military assault, but we see a gradual infiltration of the land. And this is indeed what we see in the book of Judges in particular, in Judges 1 and 2. These Canaanites are entrenched there. They are uh, hunkered down. There are lots of people who are in the land. And so what, so, so what we have here is a basically, you know, for, for about a period of 200 years, there is this gradual assimilation that takes place. Yes, some military incursions are in, in, involved, but it's more a matter of process and infiltration. And this is borne out in the archaeological record as well as in the scriptures. So we see that there is something more going on here than just some sort of a massive assault. It's not it's not ethnic, ethnically motivated. In fact, remember Rahab, the you know she is the one who is this tavern keeper, also a prostitute, who becomes part of the people of God. In at the end of chapter eight in Joshua, we see these Canaanite peoples, the Shechemites, who are actually participating in the reading of the law, and they are really listening to the word of God, as, you know, as Gentiles, as foreigners. And so, so they are, it seems like they are also being welcomed into the people of God as Canaanites, but yet open to receiving the word of the Lord. A couple of other things to keep in mind here. God tells Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 20, for example, the verse you have in your handout. You know, he tells, you know, the, the command is to leave alive nothing that breathes, to utterly destroy. And remember, I talked about how that word utterly destroy is also used of the people of Judah uh, when God says he will utterly destroy, but it doesn't literally happen. There are lots of people from Judah who are left to go to Babylon or left to inhabit the land. But when, you, this, is when this is done, it's interesting, 
you know, when Joshua says that he, it says Joshua carried out all that Moses commanded. Well, think about that. If Joshua carried out all that Moses commanded and Moses said, utterly destroy, leave alive nothing that breathes, but yet there are lots of survivors left, did Moses mean that literally? Well, the answer is no. He understood it in this hyperbolic context rather than in this, uh, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a literal sort of fashion. So Joshua was obedient to all that Moses commanded. We see that repeated in the book of Joshua. But yet we see that there are lots of survivors left. But Joshua is obedient to what Moses has commanded. In other words, this is exactly what we see in the rest of the ancient Near East, that this was hyperbole or exaggeration. Now, I've given you, I've, I've touched on the Amalekites from, uh, from chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, as well as the Midianites, so I won't go into detail on that, but the same sorts of things apply. I'll just give you an example. In 1 Samuel 15, it looks like we have no Amalekites left except for King Agag, whom Samuel thrust through. Saul had disobeyed God in his battle, that he was to leave alive nothing that breathes. Well, we, it seems like there are no Amalekites left, right? Well... Chapters you know, 29 and 30, we see that there are lots of Amalekites left. In fact, David is fighting against them. 400 of them end up escaping. So something more is going on here. So I'm just saying we have to be careful about overemphasizing certain themes and ignoring other ones, like lots of survivors being left uh, and mentioned in the text. Another point to keep in mind is this. The emphasis in the scriptures when it comes to the Canaanites is far more highlighting, driving out, and dispossessing the Canaanite peoples. It is more interested in displacing them, in a sense, cutting them off from the land. You see, if you cut them off from the land, kind of push them out beyond the borders, what you've done is you have shown that their God, their worship, which is connected to the land, the God and the land are intimately connected, you end up breaking up that kind of theology. You end up throwing them into a confusion about their own, the powers of their own gods. In fact, the, the Canaanites should have known that the God of Israel was far more powerful because he had already demonstrated that in the land of Egypt and how he had triumphed over the gods of the Egyptians and led the Israelites out through the Red Sea. So you have, you know, and, and so when Rahab talks to the spies, she is one who acknowledges that this, everybody knows about your God and how he brought you out of the land of Egypt and how he, they, God, the, the one true God triumphed over their false gods. And so, so now when they're in the land, they are dispossessing or removing And Again, to dispossess or to drive out does not mean to kill. Adam and Eve, the same word that's used, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden. Cain was driven out. David was driven from the presence of Saul. All alive, not, you know, death is not implied here. So these are some of the things that add a lot of interest and nuance to the whole discussion of the question of the Canaanites. It is. So there you go, guys. I am going to post a document for you guys to add your comments and questions like you've done in previous times. And if you can get that done, by next Wednesday. That would be great. That would keep us on pace. So I know that's that's not a lot of time, but hopefully you'd be able to do that. So uh, big picture here, Copan is arguing that this is uh, 
ancient Near Eastern war language. There's hyperbole going on. And we need to think of what type of literature we have and be careful with the idea of reading something literally. Instead, we read it literarily.